Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Would space aliens look at us as their moral equals? Would they be afraid of us? What do governments know about the whole issue that we don't? Hey there, welcome to the 471st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben. Ben, Ben Eno. <laughs> I don't know why I just I developed a southern accent there for two seconds. I'm Ben, and those stimulating questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So this evening we bring you an old friend, one of the uh, first guests we ever had when we went on the air in 2008, and one of the greatest names in the area of paranormal research. And you're welcome to call in this evening uh, with any questions or comments. Uh, the area, the 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 numbers locally. Four one seven six six one two four zero and eight hundred four four nine one two four zero from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Now, before we welcome our guests, I'm going to take a minute to offer a correction that I also offered last night on our CBS edition. A correction to something I said last week. We had lots of listener questions prompted by Ben's and my appearance in the Warner Brothers featurette that goes with this new film, The Conjuring the story behind which supposedly took place in Harrisville, Rhode Island, right in our immediate listening area. I expressed surprise that Ed and Lorraine Warren never mentioned such a dramatic case to me when I started working with them in late 1972. Now, neither of us has seen the film yet, but several listeners mentioned this doll, Annabelle. And I I do remember Annabelle the doll. (laughs) She was the centerpiece of the uh, Warren's creepy collection in this subterranean passage between their house and their studio. It's another long story. So I had not made the connection, and I do remember being told something about the case. I'm not saying that I believe it, and Ben and I do stress that this is Hollywood entertainment and not history, science, or even good parapsychology, and certainly not good theology. But my apologies for keeping our guest waiting. Anyway, uh, Stanton Friedman spent his 74th birthday on this show, or nearly so, and now we welcome him on his 79th birthday. Stan is a nuclear physicist, lecturer, and UFO researcher. He earned his graduate and undergraduate degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. Respectively, for 14 years, uh, he worked worked as a nuclear physicist for such companies as General Electric, General Motors, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas Corporation, working in such highly advanced, classified, eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He became interested in UFOs in 1958, I was in kindergarten, Stan, and since 1967 has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces and 18 other countries, in addition to various nuclear consulting efforts. He has published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, including Larry King Live in 2007 and twice in 2008 and many documentaries. He is the original civilian investigator of the famous Roswell incident and is the co-author or author of 10 books that I know of and which we will talk about later. His newest book, also co-authored with our good friend Kathleen Martin, is Science Was Wrong, released in June 2010. Stan has provided written testimony at congressional hearings, appeared twice at the United Nations, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology. He will be the keynote speaker at the first New England UFO conference on Saturday, October 26th, at the City Hall in Levenster, Massachusetts, not too far from here. Stan lives in Fredericton, New Brunswick, lovely town. So, Stan Freeman, after that uh, extremely long biography, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal, and happy birthday. Well, I'm glad to be 
glad to hear both counts. You know, every every birthday is a victory won. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to realize that. That is yeah, true. Better than the, any alternative you can suggest. Indeed. <laughs> Alrighty, so before we go uh, anywhere else, how was the MUFON uh, symposium earlier this month? I wasn't there. Oh, really? I, 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 I was at Roswell two weeks earlier. Oh, okay. Well, how was that? That went extremely well. Uh, best crowd in three years, and uh, lots of people, lots of interest, lots of books being signed, etc. So Roswell is maintaining its status as one of the premier events. I mean, it's, the museum is open all year long, of course. Yeah, but, that, that's uh, surprising. You know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is if you're in Roswell, it's because you want to be there, and it isn't on the way to anywhere. No. Uh, you know, it's 200 miles from Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso, 200 miles from Albuquerque. So it's not on the main, in the mainstream, but boy, they turn out in droves, and I'm so glad to see it. So are the, so are the leaders of Roswell, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, and I don't even get a cut, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, let, let's kick off with something a little simple. Uh, what first got you interested in UFOs? Uh, being a cheapskate. <laughs> Really? <laughs> Being a cheapskate? Yeah, okay. in 1958, I was a young nuclear physicist, 24, working for General Electric on the exciting aircraft nuclear propulsion program. Now, that wasn't just a little study. Uh, we employed 3,500 people, 1,100 of them were engineers and scientists. That year, we spent $100 million, which, believe it or not, was quite a bit of money in 1958. <laughs> anyway, my wife and I were ordering books from a mail-order book place, the... Uh, Marlborough, and uh, I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. And there was the report on unidentified flying objects by Air Force Captain Edward Ruppel, who had headed the Air Force Project Blue Book in the early 50s. And the book sounded interesting, and the Air Force was a co-sponsor of our aircraft nuclear propulsion program. They were the good guys, I thought, then. Uh, and I figured, you know, if, if these things are real, and I didn't have an opinion because I didn't have any information, and if they were real and used nuclear energy, boy, that would really help our program, ANP, Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion. Uh, also, I thought that, uh, you know, uh, it might be interesting reading, and if worse comes to worse, it would be worth a laugh. And after all, it was only a dollar marked down from two ninety five a hardcover book. Hmm. Still have it as a matter of fact. Wow. So I got the book, I read it, and it turns out in retrospect to have been a very fortuitous choice of first book. Because it didn't convince me, but it intrigued the heck out of me, and I shared it with a neighbor. Charlie was ten years older than I was, and he was an engineer. And he was more impressed than I was, and I respected Charlie. And when I saw him, ten years later, I was speaking. I wasn't speaking at the time I read the book. Uh, I saw him at a meeting of the Institute of Electrical Electronic Engineers in Connecticut. First thing and his wife said, we knew you when you didn't believe in flying saucers, which hmm. pleased me greatly. So I read that book. I moved out to California. had a good librarian, read another 12 books some of which were trash, and if I'd read them first, I'd have never read another one. And then I made an extraordinarily lucky discovery. At the University of California Berkeley Library, uh, I found a copy of Project Blue Book Special Report 14, biggest study ever done for the Air Force. And what was surprising was it hadn't been mentioned in any of the dozen books that I'd read. 
Hmm. And it was chock full of data on 3,201 sightings, 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. But what really caught my eye, the guy who put it out included the statement, the official Air Force press release, 1955, uh, with a quote from the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Quarles. And that made me mad because in the quote, Here's the Secretary of the Air Force lying to the American public. He said, quote, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been explained as other things, as conventional phenomena or illusions is really the way he put it, uh, if there had been more information available. Now, the only trouble with that statement is, I mean, I had the report in front of me. I had the 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. The unknowns were not 3%. They were 21.5%. That's a long wait from Wow. Me. And furthermore, they were completely separate from the 9.3% that were listed as insufficient information. Now, in the report, it also said that they did a, a chi-square analysis. They asked an obvious question. And all these charts, tables, graphs, and maps, is there really any difference between the unknowns, the only ones we're interested in, and the knowns? Maybe we just missed the boat, and if you look at the apparent size, color, shape, speed, etc., they're the same, those two groups. They did a chi-square statistical analysis. The probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. Furthermore, they had a rule. No sighting could be listed as an unknown unless all four of the final report evaluation scientists agreed it was an unknown. And he too could label it anything else. Aircraft, balloon, astronomical, etc. And they did a quality evaluation of all the sightings. Turns out the better the quality, the more likely to be unexplainable. Hmm. So that report really, it got me angry on the one hand. I don't like being lied to. I mean, I worked under security. I was working then under security, but and sometimes you have to tiptoe around the truth, but a blatant lie, and the, the press release didn't even give the title of the report. Surely if it had, some reporter would have been happy to say, what happened to 1 through 13? Never heard anything about them. Well, they hadn't. They were all still classified at that time. <laughs> you know? And they didn't say who did the work. Battelle Memorial Institute, Columbus, Ohio, a very well-respected research and development firm. Anyway, that report really got me going, and I joined a couple of UFO groups, the old APRO and NICAP, to get more information, mm -hmm. and it was takeoff from their time. And what is amazing is we still have, it's almost as if the media said, hey, we aren't going to talk about that. That's got too much solid evidence in it. Look, my University of Chicago classmate, Carl Sagan, twice has publicly stated there are interesting sightings that aren't reliable. There are reliable sightings that aren't interesting, but there are no interesting and reliable sightings. Totally false. He never gives a reference, of course, doesn't cite a source, just does his research by proclamation. Mm -hmm. And so that's typical of the nasty, noisy negativists, as I call them. Don't bother me with the facts my mind's made up. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And second... Uh, you know what the public doesn't know I'm not going to tell them 
And third, if you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. Nobody will know the difference. Exactly. And fourth, do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble, and nobody's going to give you a hard time if they don't have the facts. So I'm a an extremist, if you will. I want solid information. And you don't often get it from the government. As a matter of fact, let me throw in one other thing here about Blue Book. Because all the noisy negativists will refer to Project Blue Book. But they don't refer to General Carol Bolander's statement, which led to the closure of Project Blue Book in 1969 after the University of Chicago, uh, University of Colorado study. Uh, the Condon Report recommended Blue Book be closed because it wasn't contributing anything to science or intelligence. General Bolander was an Air Force general who was asked, what should we do about Project Blue Book? This is in 1969. He was not connected with it. His job was to work on the lunar excursion module, and we landed on the moon, as you may recall, in July of 69. And as he pointed out to me, I think I'm the only one who ever talked to him, because I didn't find out about him until 10 years later, and I managed to locate him. And uh, I got a copy of his memo. And in the memo, he said, reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP, Joint Army-Navy Air Force Publication 146, or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. An astonishing statement. Two paragraphs later, he says, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report UFO sightings However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures established for that purpose. Doesn't matter. Since that time, the Air Force said, oh, we don't have anything more to do with UFOs. Blue Book was closed. That's it. Nothing going on. A flat-out lie. And when I talked to him on the phone, uh, I said, it sounds to me like you're saying there were two separate channels, communication channels. Yes, there were. One is for reports which could affect national security. Like I had a case where a UFO went down the runway at a strategic air command base where nuclear weapons are stored. Mm-hmm. That's a national security problem. It ain't supposed to be there. <laughs> you know. And otherwise, if I, my wife and I go out at the end of the driveway and see a saucer fly over, no big deal. It happens all the time. <laughs> so the nasty, noisy negativists never talk about General Bolander's work. He's dead now, I checked. Uh, It's an interesting world in which the press and the scientific community have jointly uh, abdicated their responsibility, which is to stick out their, uh, make their efforts to collect data about the subject before expressing opinions, as they so often do. Uh, A good example of that, incidentally, the uh, New York Times. You know, all the news that's fit to print, or all the news that fits. Yeah. I think that's a better description. They put out an article about the explanation number four of the Roswell incident. The crash test dummies article. Mm-hmm. Front page, Sunday New York Times, above the fold. Now, you can't get a better placement than that. No. And in this article, they bought a stupid Air Force explanation number four. That is, crash test dummies. Now, there's two major problems. I talked to the man who had been in charge of the program. I don't know why the Air Force didn't. They had his picture in their big, fat report. 
And the major problem is none were dropped until six years after Roswell. I mean, what six years between friends? Just a little time travel doesn't matter, you know. Exactly. Secondly, there's a picture shown, and I talked to the man in charge of the program in person, Colonel Madison. In the picture, you can see, and as he pointed out to me, for the test to be meaningful, planes were flying higher and farther than ever before, and you wanted to be sure if you had to jump out of a plane at 40,000 feet that you didn't freeze to death on the way down, that you weren't clobbered, whatever. The dummies were six feet tall and 175 pounds and were in flight gear because it affects the temperature and the heating and the drag and all that sort of thing. Two important points. Instead, we have the Air Force suggesting that anybody in New Mexico, if they saw one of these crash test dummies, would immediately have presumed it was an alien invasion going on you know, squished from six feet to uh, four feet with a big head. I mean, that's the dumbest explanation you can imagine. They got away with it. So the press owes us all some effort to get the facts straight. Quite true. All right, so we're going to move on a little bit to something a little more, uh, well, moderately recent, the whole exopolitics movement. And just a few months ago, we had on a guest who talked about that whole, uh, what was it, like a mock congressional hearing or something? I forgot what yes, it was called. Uh, the, the citizens' hearing. That the was citizens' the, hearing, that. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. hearing on disclosure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think about all that? Well, I was there. I did my piece. I read my uh, several papers into the record and answered questions, and I I was there out of self-defense. I am not in favor of everything being put out on the table, which surprises some people. But why should the United States put out data it may have gleaned from study of uh, crash saucer wreckage if the Russians and Chinese don't put out their data? Does that make any sense? Nope. No, not at all. That's a very good point. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Well, I worked under security for 14 years, and I'm a respecter of required security. And sure, there were times when there were stupid things. I think the guy in charge of security on the AMP program thought at one time that we would come up with a magic paint that we could paint on stuff that would absorb radiation. So he thought everything about radiation shielding, which was my ballot, should be classified. That was a bit extreme, to say the least. But the notion that you should not give out technical data which could help your enemies is a rational one as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sure the Russians think the same way. Why should we put out anything if the U.S. and China don't put out anything? You know? Mm -hmm. Quite true. So the hearings were interesting. They lasted for a week. And I should add that unlike the six former congressmen, five congressmen, one senator, uh, I did not get paid twenty thousand dollars yeah. for spending a yeah, week. Yeah, we mentioned there. that to our. That was Gary Hessel time we had on, by the way. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, we got paid our expenses, and uh, you know that, that's okay. I'm not complaining about that, but just so people don't think I was there for the money. Mm. <laughs> yeah. There's right. no money there to be there for. <laughs> yeah. Yet, there was some very well received testimony. The foreign testimony was particularly well received. There were leading military guys, you know, from Peru and from Chile and from Brazil and from England. And, you know, uh, there were a lot of good people and a lot of good Americans. And I think uh, the testimony of the guys connected with the uh, uh, nuclear tip missiles that got taken off the line when a UFO 
Oh, was present. That stuff was extremely well received. Uh, I wasn't a real fan of uh, Steve Greer's movie. Uh, he's made claims about, uh, you know, setting up the evil big businessman. Uh, they, we have free energy, but the, these guys don't want us to get it, so they're making hundreds of billions of dollars. Now, that's an extreme claim. He's never demonstrated that there is free energy. Mm -hmm. And that we know what it is, and if only these greedy people would stop doing what they're doing, we'd all, the whole world would be a great place. Well, it sounds great, but there was no evidence provided to substantiate that. And so it, it was an interesting time. Do I think anything great will come out of it? Well, I don't know. I'm waiting to see the movie. Uh, they uh, put out uh, on the airwaves. The hearings were filmed, in other words, live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's supposed to be a movie that will uh, dilute that down in time. I mean, make it less than two hours long. And everybody will be able to see it. And so that would be nice, I suppose. Uh, whether any good will come out of it, I don't know. It seemed, though, that the ex-congressman uh, thought it would be a better idea, instead of going to Congress, go to the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And they may be right. I'm the only one who, who was speaking at this one that also spoke at the congressional hearings of 1968. That shows you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies and you're having fun, Stan. Uh, yeah, and also I provided uh, testimony at the UN, and so I, I, I think it's probably a good idea. Back then, the U.S. was able to kibosh the recommendations that a project be set up, but I don't think it carries as much weight now as it did then. Probably not. So it, that would be interesting to see if that happens, and... I'd be happy to contribute to another congressional symposium. What the heck? Sure. Uh, again, you don't get paid tons of money for doing any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. So moving on from that, um, move it to a sort of a next step, which is the exopolitics movement. And, well, first of all, what is it, and what, what's your opinion of it? Well, what I can see of it doesn't impress me that much. I think there's a lot of theorizing... Uh, and uh, my view of the way the universe outside of Earth exists is different from a lot of people's. Uh, I think that there is there are civilizations all over the place out there, some of them much more advanced than we are. We are a very primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. And so I think aliens are coming here for good reasons on their viewpoint. Based on one major assumption I make about every advanced civilization, it's concerned about its own survival and security. And at the end of World War II, there were three signs that the idiots on Earth were not to be trusted and would soon be able to bother them, meaning less than 100 years, which on a cosmic timescale is nothing. The three signs were nuclear weapons, Powerful rockets, the V-2, which were used for killing, not for sending mail between Germany and England. <laughs> and powerful radar, which was really the beginning of the modern electronic era. Really wasn't any radar we're talking about a few years before World War II. And isn't it amazing 
the only place in the whole world in July 1947, when Roswell happened, where you could study all three of these technologies was southeastern New Mexico. That's where Roswell is. First nuclear weapons test at the uh, Trinity site. Uh, that's where we had our tests being run on the powerful V-2 rockets. And that's where we had our best radar. But sometimes the rockets went south instead of north. Very distressing to the Mexicans, incidentally. <laughs> now, admittedly, I had an English uh, astronomer uh, who was saying on a program we did in England that why would anybody, why would an alien especially want to go to New Mexico? All there is there is sand. And I said, you ever been there? No. You don't know that two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States are in New Mexico? That that's where we were testing the captured German rockets? More classified work going on there than any place else. Well, he didn't know any of those things. Really? Well, he and he said, well, they could have gone to the Soviet Union. I said, sorry, they didn't test their first A-bomb until 1949. We're talking July 47. Mm -hmm. Then he shut up for a while. Anyway. <laughs> you, you know, what, what I'm saying is that you got to look at the facts. Uh, another fact that constantly gets left out of reports by the noisy negativists of the nonsense about Roswell, as they put it, is that that was the most classified base in the United States. That... The 509th, the group that was stationed there, the most elite military group in the entire world, very simple reason. They dropped the A-bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and two more the next year in Operation Crossroads in the Pacific. They were the only nuclear weapons group in the entire world. Uh, somehow that gets left out of the discussions by the debunkers. Just a bunch of soldiers sitting around with nothing better to do than to make up stories. Hardly, you know. And let me stress the nuclear point for a minute. I get all this nonsense. You can't get here from there. Look how much energy it would take to get to the nearest galaxy. I don't care. There are over a thousand stars within 55 light years of here. Next galaxy, Andromeda, is two million light years away. Who cares? What difference does it make? But the big thing is nuclear fusion would get us to the stars if we wanted to spend the money. We figured out that's how all the stars in the universe produced their energy in 1938. Our first atomic bomb was 1945. That was fission. It only released the energy of, let's say, 17,000 tons of TNT. The first That's the first atomic bomb. A big bomb in 1944 was... 10 tons of TNT energy release. Our first fusion device, 1952. 10 million tons of TNT energy released. And the, Germ the Germans, yeah, the Russians let off one that was 50 million tons of TNT energy released. And if you use a fusion rocket, and I worked on them in the 1960s, you can kick particles out the back end of the rocket that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they get in a dumb old chemical rocket. So, I uh, hear all kinds of nonsense. You know, it, it's as if people don't realize that it's the year 2013, not 1813. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a, a break here, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on 1240 AM, tw uh, 
WOON in uh, Rhode Island here and uh, beautiful Blackstone Valley of New England. And we'll be right back with our guest, Stanton Friedman. Stay with us. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Garrow, the host of PRN's Garage Pass, where I keep you up to date with all the latest NASCAR racing news. Garage Pass can be heard right here on WOON every Tuesday through Saturday mornings at 735 and is sponsored by Simon Chevrolet, 114 Fortin Drive, One Socket. Remember, Simon Chevrolet is always open online at simonchevy.com. Garage Pass, Simon Chevrolet and WOON, One Socket Radio, a winning combination. Owen Radio, Owen Worldwide. Okay, we wanted to mention several charities Ben and I have adopted. You can find that on uh, BehindTheParanormal.com or our regular site, NewEnglandGhosts.com, which I understand is currently under a cyber attack, we're told, it, so you might not be able to access it until later. However, I, I do want to mention particularly USA Cares, which provides financial and advocacy assistance to post-9-11 active duty U.S. military personnel, veterans and their families. Uh, if they're stuck for the mortgage that month, out goes a check from these great people. So uh, I ask you to check that out, usacares.org. And we are trying to form a chapter in Rhode Island, so let us know if you're interested in that. Also, Canadian Veterans Advocacy. As you know, our Canadian uh, cousins and friends have been with us uh, shoulder to shoulder since the beginning of the War on Terror. And uh, our good friend Michael Blaze up in Ontario has uh, started this, this, this wonderful group, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, which uh, works uh, in the Parliament and in the, the uh, local legislatures uh, and provincial legislatures for uh, legalization, well, so, sort of a, a legislation, I should say, that is very, uh, is what veterans deserve, and also on other issues that have to do with uh, uh, veterans affairs in, in Canada. So check that out too, CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org. And as I say, we are apparently having some problems with the website right now. Uh, we're told by our uh, hosts in Nova Scotia that the problem is um, sort of uh, global and there's some sort of an attack going on and it should be straightened out before the end of the day. They have a lot of people working on it. But uh, BehindTheParanormal.com is our main website and uh, for the show and for the over 500 podcasts we have. So let's get back to Stan Friedman, our guest. And uh, Stan, um, the matter of exopolitics, we've had a lot of people on the show about this and it differs from the disclosure thing because they believe, as I understand it, that we need to be re- prepared to deal with whoever's operating these flying saucers, you know, with these yeah. alien life forms or whatever they may be. Um, but that assumes, it seems, that, that they would consider us equals. Do you think that is a realistic or a safe assumption? No. No, I don't. Uh, I tell people I don't talk to the squirrels in my backyard. Yeah. And, and people don't seem to understand, well, if they don't think we're equals, why are they coming here? Because they know we're idiots. And we have, you know, a simple number. Not only that we killed 50 million of our own kind during World War II, and we destroyed 1,700 cities, we have also exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons, only two of them on people, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But anybody looking at us says, hey, we don't want them out here. I think they're here to quarantine us. Uh, you can't, you know, we had one Pearl Harbor. Nobody out there is going to want to be surprised by idiots whose job it is to kill. I mean, just a simple figure. This year, the military budget of the planet Earth will be approximately a trillion dollars. How many children died yesterday of preventable disease or starvation instead of being fed by some of that billion or trillion dollars? So, uh, from an alien viewpoint, we're not nice guys. 
you can understand why they've interfered with the being able to be launched of a number of nuclear-tipped missiles. There's a book, uh, Nukes and UFOs. They're Bob Salas's book. He was a commander in one of these installations. Ten Minuteman missiles went offline one after the other with a, a UFO sitting over the front gate. I can understand that. And things have happened like that in Russia. So... You know, I, I don't think we're equals to them. Look, the first long-distance radio communication on planet Earth took place in 1901. Uh, Marconi's uh, people and up in Newfoundland. 1901. That's not very long ago. Man's been on the planet, or the planet's been suitable for man for billions of years. Uh, there are stars out there that are 10 billion years old. And also there are stars that have nearby neighbors. Unlike us, we're out in the boondocks. Next star over 4.3 light years. But my favorite stars, as you know, you've had uh, Kathleen Martin on, I believe, or Will Never on, talking about captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. The base stars, we believe, involved in that particular experience. Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli. Constellation of reticulum. Uh, which means the net and what. Uh, they're only 39.3 light years away, but they're 30 times closer to each other than the sun is to the next star over. Okay. We're in the boonies. Exactly. Stan, I'm going to interrupt you for a minute because we have a caller. Sure. Uh, this is Bob from, is it Bob from Franklin? No, from Cumberland. Oh, from Cumberland, sorry. Yeah. Bob, go ahead. You're on, you're on the air with Stan Friedman. Yeah, I couldn't pass up a chance to speak with uh, Stanton Friedman. It's what a pleasure it is for me. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Friedman, uh, what is your uh, take on the, do you believe that we have a secret space program? Well, you mean with a base on the moon and maybe one on Mars and all this sort of stuff? Well, and Serpo and all that. Aurora, perhaps, or... Well, you know, I, I'm certainly convinced, having worked under security for 14 years and been to 20 archives, that secrets are being kept from us. There's no question about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I have not seen evidence of the secret space program. Have you ever heard of Gary McKinnon? Uh, he's the guy in England, isn't he? He's the guy uh, in England. Supposedly he's uh, mild or, or mildly autistic. But anyway, he he uh, broke into NASA's um, yes. uh, database, and he came across uh, things that, that listed non-terrestrial officers, and it listed a bunch of uh, vessels that are not ocean-going vessels. Have you heard about that? Well, I've heard about that, and again, I, I put it in my gray basket. How's that? Not enough okay. data to say yay or nay. I don't know. Okay. All right. And uh, I, I was, about a month ago, um, 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 Bill uh, Burns was uh, helping Paul, and I asked him a question about the uh, Phoenix lights and whether he thought it was possibly, I'm talking about the big craft now, could it be, possibly be uh, a hologram? And he went on to explain that, well, he spoke with the governor, Symington, who said it flew over his house, and he said it looked solid. But I'm, I didn't get a chance to to back to ask him the other question. I've saw people I've seen on these um, special shows on UFOs about this specific case. They say that uh, one guy said he said it looked like, because it passed right over him, he said it looked like mirage, and he could see the lights or the stars between right through the, the vehicle, which leads me to think that it possibly could be a hologram. What do you think? Well, yeah, I certainly expect if we could make a hologram, they could make holograms. That's no big deal. You know, 
I, the Phoenix Life, I've talked to a number of witnesses. Just got back from Phoenix at uh, 2, 2.30 this morning, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, everybody I talked to there, they were solid. They blocked out the sky. It was a very beautiful night, uh, March 13th, back in 97, I guess. Right about that. Uh, and uh, blocked out the sky, and as it went over, silently and huge... Uh, then you could see the stars again. So that one was solid. That doesn't mean they don't know how to do other things. Uh, you know, we, we have to leave room for aliens knowing a few things we don't know. That shocks people. It bothers them. You mean we're not the smartest people in the universe? Come on! <laughs> well, you know, we're not, is all I can say. Not only because of how we behave. Killing 50 million of our own kind is not exactly a nice thing to do. Yeah, I'd like to just say that our human race, we're, you know, we kind of put ourselves down, but we're controlled by a very small, minutia group of people that are really calling the shots, so we can't really blame ourselves entirely. Well, well we'll let them do the controlling, you know. Uh, yeah, who, it, it isn't a question of blame. It's a question of, from an alien viewpoint, to be realistic. We're not nice guys. <laughs> Yeah, very good. You know, think about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I worry about the world in which my great-grandson will grow up. Boy, tell me about it. Boy, yeah. I have a new granddaughter myself, and I fear for their future, especially the way, this, the, way the country's going. I worry anyway, about my son. Time, I don't want to step on Paul's toes. Okay, well, very good. Well, so thank you very much, my, Bob. Let me give you my website while we're at it. Yeah, please. www.stantonfriedman.com and I told you how to reach me and how to get all my books and DVDs and all that sort of stuff, you know. Oh, I've read so. many of your books. So um, that's why it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so right. much. Thank you, Thank Bob. Bye-bye. Okay, well, Bob took the words right out of my mouth, Stan. I wanted to give you a chance to uh, talk about your website, your books, what you're working on, and where people can find out more about you, which you a started to do. perfect segue. A perfect segue. Uh, great. The, uh, I should add that... Uh, uh, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I try to tell it like it is, but I also am willing to say, I don't know. It's in my grave basket. Because I don't know everything. Now, that will disappoint some people, but uh, <laughs> I do know this, that the nasty, noisy negativists don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I specialize in dealing with them. I've done debates on coast-to-coast -coast radio and won... Haven't done one I've lost yet on there. Mm -hmm. uh, even at the uh, Oxford University Debating Society, my team won 60 to 40 percent. Uh, the point is, there's an enormous amount of solid information. We don't need to settle for junk. Uh, you know, for the wishful thinking of the nasty, noisy negativists. And I write a monthly column for the MUFON Journal. And uh, I don't think I'm going to run out of material because there's all kinds of stupid things. Well, let me give you a, a prime example. The English Astronomer Royal. Now, what more exalted position could you have than that? Mm. Uh, last year said, only kooks see UFOs. And why would anybody come here just to meet with kooks? I mean, no reference. No information. He obviously knows nothing about the subject. How about all the astronomers that have seen UFOs? Are they kooks too? Or the pilots? Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, I, I presume he doesn't fly any place because pilots, there are thousands of pilots who have had sightings. 
they don't like to publicly admit it, but there is a group called NARCAP, National Aviation Reporting Association for Anomalous Phenomena, something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we, we have a French pilot who is a, <coughs> a show reporter, so to speak, from that that vicinity. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, he, he doesn't dare give his name, certainly not on the air, because he's, he's no. an active French pilot for a uh, well-known airline. So, But, Stan, uh, we're burning up the hour so fast, as we always do. But uh, we wanted to mention that you are the keynote speaker at the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts, on October right. 26th. Can you tell us about the conference and give us a preview of your own presentation? Well, I haven't decided what I'm going to say yet. Well, that's a good honest answer. Come, come along all the time. But I'm looking forward to it. It's a New England-based uh, uh, conference, and I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which is on the fringe of New England. Yeah. Some people say, how much more fringy can you get than Stan Friedman? But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but we're looking forward to seeing you there. We're going to be doing live interviews in front of an audience with the, you and the other speakers, hopefully, if they can get that organized. And uh, it'll be, uh, yeah. be a lot of fun, I'm sure. So uh, I certainly wanted to ask you... Uh, from um, your particular perspective, and we had, you know, we deal with all sort, sorts of subjects that don't have anything to do with UFOs. But when we do, sure. we try to have good people like yourself. We have Ted Phillips, Peter Robbins, people of that kind. Yeah. And we are um, seeing a growing perception, uh, at least for many of the guests in this field, that ufology is part of a larger paranormal picture. We ourselves usually take the, I suppose you might call it the, the the shamanic research or the ghost research or whatever you want to call it. And um, names are indeed fleeting. They are, and, and our language isn't up to actually talking about this stuff. And we are very often led, since we investigate cases for long periods of time, to UFOs. I mean, you wouldn't think that that would be logical, but we do. We're constantly being led uh, to um, greys and UFOs that people think are ghosts and all this business. So, what is your perception of a of the so I suppose what we call the pan-paranormal movement. Are you seeing this in ufology? Are you seeing people... Yes, yes I am. Okay. The, the thing is, it would astonish me if an advanced technological civilization, which is what I think UFOs represent, maybe several of them, many of them, didn't do things and know about things that we don't understand and don't know how to duplicate. In other words, technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. And a laser isn't just a better light bulb, entirely different physics. So I would be astonished if aliens weren't doing things that we call paranormal uh, just because we don't know how to explain them. Who gave people the notion that we're the most advanced beings in the whole universe? You can blame yeah, the Enlightenment first, for that, I guess. <laughs> first radio yeah. broadcast 1901 long distance radio I mean I'm sure there's Pat Robertson out there saying that uh, indeed all the intelligent life in the universe is on earth and he also says that we were created the planet was created 4004 BC on a Thursday afternoon I think it was oh, dear. and I think he left out six zeros <laughs> so uh, you know it, it's like the contrast with the the SETI guys, silly effort to investigate, S-E-T-I, you know. Uh, Frank Drake uh, said not too long ago, there might be as many as 8,000 places in the galaxy that could send signals. Why they would is another story. But the current, because of Kepler, our recognition seems to be that, my goodness, there might be 8 billion places where there are living, thinking people in our galaxy alone. 
why they would be uh, interested in us except to make sure we don't get out there, I don't know. Well, one of the uh, philosophical issues that we have brought up on several occasions, and a lot of people said that we were the first ones who asked them this, and we've asked you this before, but the notion of being advanced, the state of being advanced, we seem to assume, as, as you know, we assume many things in our society, and yeah. even in this kind of research. One of the assumptions is that the definition of advanced is technological advancement, gadgets, and te- that sort of technology. Well, I mean, look how stupid we are. We have tons of gadgets. Yeah, I would rather be at the um, at the beck and call, not the beck and call, but r- rather be at uh, the contact point with people who are advanced morally, spiritually, yeah. ethically. Um, look at the Nazis. I mean, they have plenty of technology. That's I mean, right. what say you on all that? Well, I- I'm in full agreement with you. I think we need to look around for a much bigger picture. Uh, being advanced. Uh, technologically isn't enough. Look, uh, we, we killed uh, 50 million of our own kind in World War II. We destroyed 1,700 cities. Can anybody say it took an advanced civilization to do that? We'll spend a trillion dollars this year on things military while thousands of children die of preventable disease or starvation every day. Okay. So, morally... Are we an advanced civilization? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, you can say that, gee, maybe this is a penal colony. They dumped all their bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. I have thought about that since you said it many years ago, and I heard you say that. I think that's um, that's a distinct possibility. I think it's very plausible. Yeah. Well, you know, in Australia, they're very proud of their uh, their uh, convict heritage, believe yes. it or not. <laughs> yeah, so, so we're told. Mm. Yeah, well, we, we got a letter from Australia recently where people, uh, this retired couple was looking out their window and saw a dinosaur walk by. They're talking about multiverse experiences. not something that happens every day, but back to our subject. Um, we um, are wondering, too, about the changing, for lack of a better term, physical nature of UFOs, as pointed out by Ted Phillips, who's a good friend of Yours and ours. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. We, we just had an anonymous caller call in and say that uh, there was a UFO sighting this Saturday, um, like right over near uh, Jay's Deli here in Woonsocket, like right near Route 99. And uh, for any, anybody who has any information on this, you can you can shoot us an email, Ben at BehindTheParanormal.com or yeah, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Yes, the emails are indeed working. But back to the point that he mentioned that these were triangular, that these were triangular shaped, from what I recall, from because there's a lot of noise going on, so... But it's strange that you see these wedge-shaped UFOs now as opposed to the um, saucer-shaped things. What do, you, what do you think happened with that? Well, I think there were, we still have reports of huge, I'll call them uh, cigar-shaped motherships, for want of a better phrase. I think we got Chevrolets and we got Buicks and we've got uh, Rolls Royces. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if there were many different models. Or right. many different species visiting us, or well, yeah, whatever it is they're yeah. doing, yeah. And each has its own uh, vehicle system, what can I say? And remember that if these things work by interacting with the atmosphere, for example, a magneto-aerodynamic system, it may depend on the local conditions back there. Maybe certain shapes are more appropriate for certain places. That's that wouldn't it. be surprising, yep. you know. And we also so. wanted to ask you about the magic... I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I want to get all this That's in. That's right. The, uh, the Magic Men movie, what's going on there? Well, options have been taken on my book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C, 
and Don Schmidt and uh, Tom Carey's book, Witness to Roswell, to make a dynamic movie, Magic Men, and the script has been revised four times, mm -hmm. and the latest news I've had is that uh, Jeff Bridges' agent is interested in having him play me. <laughs> That's great. Well, it would be okay. I'm not guaranteeing that yeah. Hollywood is, if anything, fickle. Sounds like uh, fun. Yeah, but it would be fun, and it would be, you know, a combination of all the President's Men and JFK. Uh, but with Jeff Bridges playing me, I'd even go to see that. So would we. That's, oh, yeah, definitely. That sounds great. Okay, so Stan, uh, what... Um, just, uh, I guess this is the last question we'll have time for, but I can't think of anyone better to answer this than you. What, what, after all these years, or have you come to a conclusion about what these craft really are and whatever is occupying them, uh, what, what their, their agenda might be, or are there varying agendas, varying species? Or Well, I think the situation is every bit as confused as it must have been down in the uh, Bahamas after Columbus. And the Indian chief saying, who are these guys? What do they want? How come their ships look different? They talk different languages. Some mm -hmm. are here to convert us. Some are here to kill us. Some are here to steal from us. Or all three. Uh, or, yes, or all three. So it wouldn't be surprising if there were many different groups. Every library in the neighborhood lives there. It's a nice place to visit. Wouldn't want to live there, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things, uh, this is a brief observation, uh, when I saw the Phoenix Lights, it was from an airplane, because right? we got to San Diego and they said they'd seen the Phoenix Lights about when we were flying over. Oh. And uh, I, they were, they seem to be operating, at, this is, goes back to Bob's observation, they seem to be operating a separate craft, and there were three of them, one of which appeared to land, and of course we're, you know, whipping by 33,000 feet, so, and, yeah. you know, I, I have military experience with this kind of thing, but you still, you can't. Yeah, it, there's really it's really difficult to tell. I would guess they were at about ten thousand feet, but I'm the only one, as far as I know, who's seen them from the air or has at least reported doing so, which is uh, probably not not entirely the case. But anyway, I just wanted wanted to add that uh, these things do seem to vary from what I've seen from solid craft to semi-solid and to separate craft. I mean, could the same? I suppose it's conceivable that the same craft could change shape with the proper technology. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Just because we can't do it doesn't mean nobody else can. Exactly. Well, Stan, thank you for a very interesting conversation, as always, and we will see you in Lemonster on October 26th. You certainly will, and you can see me at www.stantonfriedman.com. Excellent. Just very quickly, are you working on any more books? I'm thinking about one. Let's put it that way. Okay, very good. Well, we'll look forward to hearing about that. It's in the foundry, so to speak. Very good. Thank you. Okay. Thanks much, guys. All right. Have a good one. Stan Friedman, everybody. Okay, so um, again, he will be the spe keynote speaker at the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts on October 26th. That will take place at the City Hall, uh, right up there, um, right off the highway. It's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's going to be a really great what time. What week is that? Do you know? That's a Saturday. It's a Saturday? Yeah. Also, uh, Kathleen Marden, whom you've heard on this show, will be there. And a number of other, several other people who are very well known, Peter Robbins and several others. I believe Peter Robbins will be there. I don't know, but we're going to have some more people. Yeah, Peter will be there, and we're going to have some more uh, of the speakers on the show as we go. But yeah, the closer we get to that the date. date. And again, we ourselves will be there. You have a chance to the highlight of your life. Meet Paul and Ben Eno, and we're going to be 
conducting live. If that, if that is the highlight of your life. <laughs> Hardly. Uh, conducting live interviews uh, with all these uh, mar- marvelous folks and experts uh, in front of a live audience there at the venue where they're going to be showing UFO movies. So we're, gonna, we're doing our interviews between the movies, so it should be fun. Oh, it's not, yeah, it sounds like lots of fun. Anyway, so good. Okay, and we'll have a radio booth there as well. Okay, so, um, Ben, what? Uh, w- tell us more about what, what the, this... Well, you see... Caller reported. Uh, well... And when that was? The, I was very distracted during most of the call. Yeah, Ben is the, uh, works here at the station I, I as work. well as helping to host this show, so he has to answer the phone and stuff. Uh, and I still have to pay attention to what the guest is saying yeah. and such. So what, from what I did pick up from it, um, our uh, caller was driving down... Uh, Mend- it was near Route 99, and uh, he saw these three shapes come over the horizon, uh, like going right over Jay's Deli. And, yeah, this uh, is northern Rhode Island here we're broadcasting from, for those yeah, who are so not right, in yeah, the area. Right, right yeah. here in our very own Winsocket, Rhode Island. He didn't want to go on the air and talk about it, but he did. He mentioned that um, he was like, it was a big thing. It was a big, big, big to-do. Like, like, the point of it was orange. I do remember that part. Hmm. And there were these two other shapes near it that looked like two... They were, like, two-by-fours. And it was a cloudy night, so he knew it wasn't a plane. This was at night. And he had three other witnesses with... Or two other witnesses with him. And they all pulled over and got out of the car and took pictures with their phone. I asked I asked if he had any pictures. And he said, no, I don't. But one of uh, one of his friends did. Love to see those. Yeah, yeah I, w- I, w- I would, too. Uh, I don't know how they'd get sent to us, but... Yeah, you never know. There's there's way there's ways around that. Well, of course. So yeah, he he was uh, he said, hey, could you put the word out, see if anybody else experienced something like this? And so that's why I'm saying, hey, if, if you uh, if you happen to see anything uh, this past Saturday, then shoot us an email. About what time was that? that just- uh, actually, I didn't get the time. I'm okay. I'm assuming later at night, where yeah, they could actually pull over and not have to worry about traffic. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, perhaps we could, that person could communicate with us and tell us the time. That would help a lot. But in any case, that's. Um, uh, something that, that I think would have interested our old friend Joe Ferrier, who of course oh, had definitely. a show on this station before ours for 50 years, over 50 years, and um, wonderful, wonderful fella, well remembered in the Valley, would, would have been very interested. I asked Stan though if, if he had known Joe Ferrier, who was a, a sort of a well-known UFO expert in the 1960s, and uh, Stan did not. We I'd sent him sent Stan a picture, of Pro, uh, rather a copy of Probe magazine, which Joe used to publish. But Joe had told us that. Um, he backed away from this because things were getting too weird in his life, and his life went back to normal. Well, Northern Rhode Island's a very strange place. The whole Blackstone Valley is very weird. Yeah, we're not talking about just the politics either. No, no, exactly. no, no. Just just the whole area. A lot of strange things happen. Right. Well, in any case, that's about it for us tonight. And many thanks to our producer, Ben himself. Busy guy. And next week, uh, August 5th, we will welcome geo- geoglyphologist Arthur Far- Farum for a discussion of ancient signposts in the landscape. So send your questions or comments now to paul at behindtheparanormal.com, ben at behindtheparanormal.com, or use the question form at our show website, behindtheparanormal.com. And on our CBS radio edition of the show on Sunday, August 4th, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Windsor, and Seattle, slash Vancouver, and on radio.com, we will welcome broadcaster Ted Torbish for a discussion of his parallel world experience. And we leave you this evening with a thought from, of all people, the great 13th century Scottish warrior William Wallace of Braveheart fame. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and we still have another 45 seconds. Oh, you're supposed to tell me these things. Somebody Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, confused here. Okay. 
But in any case, uh, we do. Uh, it'll be interesting next week on our CBS edition uh, because you won't be here. Yeah, you know, Ben will be by himself, but he's I'll he's a, he's myself. an old hand at this. He's a student in radio and uh, DJ in WERS in Boston and this sort of thing. He's well experienced, and I'll look forward to listening to it. <laughs> When um, I'm on the road, and uh, we're going to have, uh, uh, of course, Ted Torbish, who was a, a uh, show host on in an internet radio network, InceptionRadio.com. With the his show was, has the interesting name of the Stench of Truth. We've been on it several times, and he's a great guy. He's going to tell us about his multiverse experiences, and we ask you if you'd like to contribute yours, let us know, uh, and that that'll be um, again the websites behind the paranormal.com and contact us through that and uh, if you've had an alternate world experience you believe or some sort of thing of that kind as Ted has uh, a lot of people have had them and uh, that's it so and that's all we have time for this evening thanks for joining us in our great cosmic journey and we shall see you next time return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.